Hello, everybody. Welcome. This is Bill Kay's Cockeyed Caravan, episode number five, coming to you, as always, from the cozy confines of my movie studio apartment, ensconced comfortably in the hills in the wood of the holly under the sign. And once again, I'm here, and we've got a little break in the action. The action, by that I mean the action outside of the uh, cozy confines. Somebody was sandblasting oh, about a block away, making it impossible to record, but they've quit. And they've left a little window, and hopefully we'll get some um, quietude, and I can dive into the nether regions of my uh, consciousness and hopefully shed a light into yours. And as I always do, I like to start just in the reactive mode, uh, what's going on? And first and foremost, uh, as he always does, he commands our attention, he assaults us, he... Uh, overwhelms the best part of our brain and it just so happens that that ugliest of americans the most uh, whose most malignant qualities have seemingly metastasized in one human form that green-eyed gangster the toxic little 70 year old stuck in his terrible twos and let loose in the sandbox to terrorize us and destroy everything he sees while his republican enablers watch with a smirk on their face he is struck again and this time in a, in a most dangerous way. Uh, by that I mean calling out with his little Twitter my, megaphone, calling out Iran. And once again, I think what we have here, uh, you don't have to be a political scientist, you don't have to be from a major uh, think tank to understand what's going on. This is a classic tale uh, of the ta- This is a classic, what would this be? A classic example of the tail wagging the dog or the dog wagging the tail. I don't know. It's something to do with a dog and his tail. And I think the idea is when the dog is wagging his tail or the tail is wagging the dog, I think it is actually when the tail wags the dog, it is an expression designed uh, to describe a situation where somebody is trying to divert our attention uh, from a more imminent danger, at least to himself. And so once again, like I said, we have a classic example of the tail wagging the dog as the PVP, that's Putin's vice president, has uh, gotten on his little Twitter megaphone and called out uh, Iran or the ancient state of Persia. And either way, uh, I think the reasoning and the rationing, like I said, is clear. After Helsinki uh, episode where... uh, the PVP met his handler, uh, and I might, might add, Helsinki uh, may end up replacing the term Munich as the benchmark for diplomatic humiliation. Uh, once again, in uh, um, uh, rather not Munich, but Helsinki, they're not far from each other. I think Helsinki is uh, about a thousand miles north of Munich, uh, maybe less. Anyway, uh, that was where. Uh, the billionaire brat boy met his handler and was stripped naked and bullwhipped on the playground for everyone to see. So what is the humiliated bully? Tears running down his face. He's pouting. He's fearful that people will be able to look in and see his true self. He's got to pick a new fight. He's got to taunt an old boogeyman. And this time it's Iran. And for those for anybody, actually, who's uh, read any history books, I prefer to call it Persia, home of the ancient peacock throne. Uh, but I don't think, in this case, uh, the PVP realizes really who he's messing with. Because let's, let's just talk about Iran. The first thing is, 
Iran is not a medieval kingdom awash in petrodollars that chops people's head off, keeps women in bondage, and coddles terrorists who flew passenger jets into buildings. That would be Iran's uh, near neighbor, Saudi Arabia, where the PVP recently did a sword dance with an assorted gang of trillionaire princes. And by the way, I might add, billionaires are honor-bound to kiss the asses of trillionaires just as millionaires are required to kiss the ass of billionaires and the rest of us are honor-bound supposedly to kiss the ass of millionaires. So the billionaire went to kiss the ass of the trillionaires over in the uh, kingdom of Saud and uh, we saw that. And now Iran is an ancient nation. Uh, it's got a nation with a proud history that predates our own nation by centuries. And Iran is not a kingdom. It is a somewhat more evolved political organism. It is, is an Islamic republic with, yes, a difficult cleric-led regime that I'm not here to defend. But there is, in Iran, ancient Persia, a serious country there to be reckoned with. And if you want to understand why these uh, religious clerics are running things, why don't you check out the name, and this is not to the public, although those of you that are listening, you might want to do this. Check out the name Mossadegh. You want to understand the Middle East? Read about Sykes and Pico, and those were the two guys that drew up the map that is today's Middle East in the year during World War One. And as they carved up the middle, uh, the, rather the Ottoman Empire with all these new boundaries, those are the very same boundaries that we're honoring today. We're fighting wars for, um, and they were boundaries by hopeful imperialist nations that were imposing their nationalist ideal into an area that was then and still is now uh, really animated or controlled by tribal allegiances. And that's what we're seeing in Syria and other places. Even Saudi Arabia was essentially a tribe uh, uh, who was elevated to the uh, status of nation-state and a kingdom. So you want to understand these areas. Let's take a look back into history. Uh, One recommendation is uh, rewatch Lawrence of Arabia. Uh, it's all in there. Uh, everything you need, about, need to know about the current situation is, frankly, it's in that movie. And the keys to understanding the present, specifically uh, in Iran today, are always found in the past. And so, for example, find out what happened in 1953 when the uh, CIA boys, the newly formed CIA, actually, uh, fresh off the, the, you know, energized by their victory in World War II, led by Schwarzkopf's dad, yes, Storm and Norman's dad of the Gulf War fame, his father, and Teddy Roosevelt's son, they went down to Iran and reinstalled into power the Shah, who had fled to Paris. And they reinstalled the Shah at the expense of the Democratic leader, who I, I th- believe I mentioned momentarily ago, a moment ago, Mossadegh, whose sole crime was he wanted to renegotiate the oil deal with BP, British Petroleum. And when that went south, uh, he took the rather, what's seemingly radical step of choosing to nationalize uh, Iranian oil, which inflamed the fears of the American Republican administration uh, at that time time, I believe it was Eisenhower, and they were concerned that Mossadegh and his democratically elected followers had fallen into the communist orbit, and they had the uh, highest duty to go to Iran and reinstall the Shah. He came back from Paris and was put into power 
That was the peacock throne, Mr. Palevi, and they ruled until the Iranian Revolution of 1981. And I think if you, uh, an excellent book, by the way, if you ever really want to read this narrative, and it sheds an incredible light on the world that we're in today, specifically with Iran and the Middle East, check out All the Shah's Men. It's a great book, which tells an incredible story, which I think also would make a great movie. So, Iran, Persia, this little block of country with the Caspian Sea up there in the north, bordering Russia. Uh, it has a, it's a country with a, a beautiful culture, incredible art, a fanatical love of poetry, although I'm not crazy about the music, I'm sorry, and they have a blessed cuisine that has massively enriched the city I live in, Los Angeles. All you have to do is drive down Westwood or Ventura Boulevard, look for that cursive Arabic script on any restaurant sign, and you can bet your last dollar that inside is kebab heaven and saffron-infused rice served directly from the gods. So, that's, in a nutshell, Iran. A troubled but proud country with a massively deep history. And so my message to the billionaire brat boy who is surely not listening to the PVP, shut the F up. You don't know anything. Iran is not the country we should be humiliating or castigating. Iran is the country we should be reaching out to. Iran is the country that we should be hosting cultural exchanges with. We should rejoin that nuclear treaty, which he trashed, and frankly, apologize. You want to bring down or bring yeah, bring down the price of energy, drop the sanctions. We don't need to cozy up to a bunch of goofball clerics, but you know, in Iran, but we do need to open doors, explore fears, show some R E S P E K T. You want to talk the great game of geopolitics? Look at the frigging map. Old Winnie the Pooh Churchill, he could tell you. Iran is the cork on the Russian bottle. Iran holds the keys to the Straits of Hormuz. All traffic that goes in and out of the Persian Gulf is looked over by Iran. And as a further note, you want to see some great acting? You want to see some great directing? Check out Ashgar's Farhadi's The Salesman, or better yet, the movie that preceded The Salesman, Separation, which, in my opinion, by any standards, is a cinema masterpiece. Okay, that's my rant about the latest tweet. Um, hopefully we don't have to take it seriously. Truth be told, this goofball, uh, I don't like to call him the PVP, is drowning in his own shit. There is so much coming at him from so many directions, all of his own making, that the poor bastard can't think. The doofus is melting down. For him, the only way out of this corner is either resign, which... He can't do that because then he would lose the power of the pardon power, and in all likelihood he would go to jail. And uh, so the White House residence is his last defense against a perp walk, which he knows and fears someday is coming. So what to do? How can he save his own ass? <laughs> he opens the old dictator playbook. Hmm, what to do? How do you survive in power? Let me see. Everybody hates me. Uh, no real loyalties. What do I do here? Hmm, I get it. Oh, here. Okay. Start a war. Yeah, that's it. A war with a country presumably weak and far, far away. A war from whose country's 
Their bullets can never reach us. A war maybe we can win. After all, uh, you know, we got Bolton here to call the shots. That, uh, For those of you that don't know, Bolton was the neocon holdover from the last wars. And with a go- war going on, guess what? I can get Mueller off the front pages. Maybe Rachel Maddow will... Uh, you know, change the subject once in a while. Maybe CNN will put on their oversized war helmets and start reporting on real news with real tanks and real jets and real bombs. I'm talking war and a war I can fucking win. <laughs> yeah, with a war, we will finally and truly get the commander and fucking chief and nobody will mess with me. All of which begs the question, and this is... Uh, something that has I've wondered about is will the generals and you know those four and five star boys with all the medals on their chest, the chiefs of staff, will they do the PVP's bidding? Will they say yes, sir, salute, and then go out and start World War Three? That's a big question. Now my hope and prayer is they won't. It's kind of a ironic turnaround from you know back in the early '60s when JFK had to stand up to the generals during the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis. There was an opportunity or an example where the civilian authority prevailed, uh, thank God, over the military authority, and war was averted and diplomacy uh, triumphed. Uh, We might, in this case, uh, find ourselves in the opposite scenario when the generals will have to stand up to the civilian power. And that is my hope, and that's my prayer. And it's also... That's my rant. That's my take on uh, just the atrocity of the moment, because we know they'll be coming one down the pike tomorrow as the uh, rope gets tighter around his neck and the truth grows near. And, you know, I, I kind of, as we're stuck in this bad political dream that, you know, I can't wake up from, I mean, normally... Politics is not my first area of interest, but the social moment just demands that we confront and look at, or at least I confront and look at what the hell is going on. Normally I'm interested in boys and girls and relationships and sex and the power dynamic and all of, uh, you know, that is my preferred field of play, but the current social moment uh, demands otherwise. And so that's just, the to the extent how much my consciousness has been affected by the uh, just the political constellation that's out there. It just doesn't seem to allow for me to explore those the intimate and the personal. I'm reminded very much of uh, Bogart in Casablanca when he famously said to Ingrid Bergman and Paula Heinrich on the tarmac that the lives of three people don't amount to a hill of beans anymore. And by that he meant our intimate selves, the interests of our loves, they have to yield now to maybe a, a greater cause. And in that case, it was the cause of freedom, the fight against fascism. And maybe we're in that moment now, um, not with guns, but with words. So this little podcast of mine is my microphone is my rifle and uh, the thoughts are my bullets and out they come. And I'm I'm hopeful that someday these words won't be used against me when I'm actually offered maybe, hopefully, perhaps a real job. And someone goes and finds, well, did you hear what he said in episode number five of Bill Case, Cockeyed Caravan? That 
podcast he did it went, that nobody listened to. Well, listen to him. He's a radical. We we gonna have to. We can't. No, he's he's no. Forget it. Fire him. We can't use him. Or he'll have to apologize for what he said. So this is a preemptive non-apology for anything that might be held against me at a later date. Um, and just I think the only thing I can say is that we're just at a unique moment in our history, a time for when any thinking person really can't talk about anything else. There's just a kind of, we're just surrounded by this massive ball of corruption mixed with incompetence and arrogance and just animated by an all-consuming mean-spiritedness that just cast a dark shadow over all of our psychic well-being, at least mine. I mean, people are just melting down. They're withdrawing into depressive shells. And it's amazing. You know, I grew up in a time when, well, I mean, it was tumultuous, but there was always room for the personal. You could carve that out and cut the other stuff out of your head, but now it just seems like it's harder and harder to do. Maybe it's the Internet or phones reminding us every second what's happening. Maybe it's the 24-7 news cycle. Maybe it's the... Rachel Maddow IV that's stuck into my arm 24-7 and we just can't get off of it. You know, my my wonder is when this ends, and it will, will I actually have an intimate personal life to go back to? Well, I've just become so obsessed by uh, this drama that's unfolding in front of me that I'll, <laughs> well, now i got to deal with my own life. Well, what happened to that? I forgot about it. <laughs> well, I hope that's not the case. But that's what it is. It's just a bad dream that someday hopefully we will wake up from. And um, I think at this moment it might be instructive to examine how we got to where we are. After all, it's easy to hate the PVP, the billionaire brat boy. Um, It's easy to do that, but it's hard to understand how we got where we are. And here are a few of my keys. Firstly... um, Misplaced values. When you worship false idols, you get false gods. And to my mind, the false idol, at least living here in Hollywood, the false idol that everybody seems to be worshiping that trumps everything is celebrity. It's the shallowest. And wealth, celebrity and wealth, uh, that's pretty much amounts to the shallowest definition of success. And when you pick celebrity over accomplishment, insight over popularity, and bombast over fucking everything, this is what you get. And so to me, it's almost biblical. It's Old Testament. We worship false idols, and we have a false god. And let me say this. If the PVP wasn't on a TV show... He couldn't have gotten within a million miles of the White House. Of course, celebrity is a stepping stone into political power is nothing new. We've seen it before, but not on this scale. Not this such a vapid incarnation of celebrity that we have, you know, in front of us. I mean, we have in California, we had Schwarzenegger. Um, wasn't my favorite actor, but he used his massive celebrity as a way to the heel of his boot on Gray Davis's forehead and climb right into the governorship. And before that, um, well, Ronald Reagan. He was a a well-known actor, a Hollywood contract player, had been a lead in many movies, and was a household name, not only for movies, but from television. And without that, he would not have been any, gotten anywhere near the governorship of California or the presidency. So 
this obsession over celebrity, this Kardashian-like uh, fetish for just being well-known at the expense of any kind of accomplishment, that, to me, underscores uh, that's sort of the territory that made the current moment that were impossible. Another thing is um, make America great again. That term, it seemed to have um, some resonance to a lot of people. And I I wanted to think about what great meant coming out of his mouth. And and to my mind, great, America was great, was sort of a code reference to the 50s, the period of the PVP's youth. It was a period when segregation ruled, when whiteness reigned supreme, when the benefits of the expanding U.S. economy were enjoyed by only a few. The American prosperity that vaulted the U.S. into a superpower was not really a shared prosperity. Uh, There was segregation across every major sector of U.S. society, and racism, racism, racism prevailed. And I think that, that... hook that make America great again has an appeal to a core white constituency that feels like it's under assault, you know, and they're not the majority. Um, and so that, that hook was, you know, had the intuitive power that really, you didn't need to explain it, but people knew what it meant. And that really, you know, was powerful to his impassioned minority. Another th- one, another issue that sort of made his rise possible is a flawed constitution. And we celebrate our constitution as a fantastic document that, you know, famously articulated the checks and balances, the powers, the trike, the, you know, the three branches of government that are all sort of set up to check excesses in the other uh, but for all of its brilliance I think it is a clumsy at least today uh, document or covenant um, the founders were comfortable with articulating the idea of democracy it's there right there in the preamble but they were massively wary of it in practice after all it was a document that had to accommodate and explain and allow for uh, slavery and it enshrined into it the Electoral College, which I might add is now part of Trump University. (laughs) And the Electoral College was not only installed as uh, a way to preserve slavery, but it also was an institutional buffer against the popular will. I mean, uh, that little institution nullified the results of the popular will in national elections. I think we're probably the only... Uh, Western democracy that doesn't elect its uh, federal national leaders by uh, popular vote. So that is like it's this these things in the Constitution. They're like the beta version, uh, you know, of the of the actual institution of democracy, and they don't always work. And unfortunately, the ability to modify, change, rectify, make it a more responsive instrument is well nigh impossible, especially, you know, in this world. Um, 
And um, I think in the modern times, uh, the Electoral College, because of its, it's definitely rendered, like, my vote in California less valuable than somebody's vote in Iowa or uh, a swing state, for example. Um, And, you know, it's allowed for this new emerging tyranny of the minority. And um, that's what we have. Um, It's not really, in my view, at least in my recent lifetime, with two federal presidents uh, selected uh, in spite of losing the popular vote. So, I mean, the checks and balance things, it was a good thing. It's working. But uh, the Electoral College has sort of, I don't know, it's just not working. It's not the the coastal progressive side of our country, which far outnumbers the interior, is now at the mercy of that minority. And somehow it goes back to institutional deficiencies in our founding document. Thirdly, uh, how does this happen? Tribal politics, my guy, my team, right or wrong, the kind of blind loyalty that, you know, people just have. It's my team. I was born this, therefore it's my guys, right or wrong. It reminds me of like, you know, I'm a Dodger fan. So if the Dodgers are filled with miscreants and goofballs, I still want to see them win. And I think that sort of um, tribal political allegiance has, well, it's it's put us in a bad place. I mean, and these these Republicans just are watching this, and they're bound more by their loyalty than by their logic, by their their loyalty to party, par, their loyalty to party than their logic to any their than the logic than the truth that they see. And I mean. They stand by and watch uh, as this disaster unfolds. Uh, So, I don't know, those are my three main factors, this kind of blind loyalty. I mean, after all, like, if you think back to the Civil War, it's not new, actually. It just feels inflamed. If, If you look back to the Civil War, hundreds upon hundreds of thousands of poor white people marched to their death by by just untold numbers, you know, in the service of a handful of oligarchical slave owners. And why did they do that? I mean, it's tribal. It's, uh, there, it, it made no logic. It certainly didn't, slavery did not benefit the poor white farmer, but off they went, musket on their shoulder, and they were slaughtered by the hundreds of thousands. And that's, in my mind, due to a kind of blind loyalty. And that same loyalty is still with us today. And um, so there it is, the three major... Wise, misplaced values, false idols, you get false gods. I think this idea of this kind of racist nostalgia for a time that exists in memory but maybe didn't really exist, that was the 50s. And then just this constitution that's clumsy, that doesn't really work in a way in fidelity with the popular will. And we're seeing that play out now at least twice in my lifetime. And all of which has turned everybody that I know into junior hamlets, you know? We're all pacing back and forth in the castle that's Elsinore. Something is rotten in the heart of Denmark, in the state of Denmark. Well, now it feels like everything is rotten in uh, the current United States. So we're all hamlets, and 
that is what it is. And I'm here alone in my movie studio apartment, just uh, a rebel without applause, exploring my uh, creative alternative um, <laughs> to not getting booked as a comedian. I'm not on stage live, so I'm here canned in my room, nobody laughing, and I don't have to leave space for laughter because if it's coming, uh, that'll be on you, not me, and hopefully you'll like it. And uh, once again, thanks for checking in to my latest rant about all things political. I want to get into other things. I want to take you on a journey uh, into the Uberverse. Uh, I'm an Uber driver, and we're going to do some shows right from my vehicle. And until then, I'll be signing off and thanking you once again for tuning me in as I...